men of Loveland, Ohio, Bigfoot, Sasquatch, werewolves, melonheads, and various other strange humanoid creatures, bipedal creatures, things that are tales of legend, folklore, or some actual scientific substance to these sightings. I'm Neil Parks, your host for Paranormally Speaking. This week, I'm going to be discussing those things I just rattled off, including the London, Ohio werewolf encounter, which I wrote about in my fourth book, fifth book, Haunted Enough. This week, I'll be covering that along with the melonhead phenomenon, the dogman, and various other strange and abnormal creatures. Uh, one such occurrence... I'll go ahead and relate to you right now as it's something that I myself have witnessed on two separate occasions along the same stretch of road. Uh, this area is in southern Ohio. It's a road called 220 and it's adjacent to the river, the Ohio River goes through or the Scioto. It was during a heavy rainstorm. It was to the point where I couldn't even see through the windshield of the vehicle I was driving because the rain was coming down so hard and the wipers were working so quickly. It was just a blanket of, of water pouring down the windshield. I come to a clearing along this cow path of a road because one of the main roads along 220 was closed due to flooding, so I had to take a back road off of 220, which is even more daring, but it was the only one open. And as I'm driving through, I see what appears to be a person standing in the middle of the road, but they were coming off the train tracks and heading towards the river. And as I got closer, I noticed they had two chickens, one under each arm. And this person didn't appear, appear to be wearing any clothing. This, I guess, thing. I, I wouldn't call it a person. As I'm right up on him, I come to a complete stop. And it stops and looks in my direction. And then I get it in full view. This appeared to be a giant frog humanoid with human arms standing upright. Every bit of maybe four and a half, five feet tall. With eyes on the side of its head like a frog or a toad, stopped and looked at me as if to say, is it okay if I cross? And when I came to a complete stop, he sort of hop-walked along, jumped into the river, and disappeared out of sight with the two chickens under his arms. By far one of the weirdest damn things I'd ever seen. I wasn't sure how to report it, who to report it to, or even if I should ever talk about it. But all the cards are on the table with me. I'm happy to share any stories or any encounters I've had. Another one just happened recently, actually, along the same stretch of road. Except this was on 220 as I'm driving over the bridge that crosses the river. Another heavy rainstorm, but it finally started to slow down. And this was at night. My headlights hit what appeared to be a man, a bald man, sitting on the bridge, peering down, looking at the water. Now, granted, this is a good 100 feet up 
from the river itself on this bridge. And I slow down wondering why there is a naked, bald man sitting on the edge of the bridge. And he turns and looks at me, looks almost like like a store-bought mannequin or something. Didn't really look like a normal human. He appeared plastic, emotionless in his gaze, and just looked at me, then turned his head back towards the darkness, looking down to the river, and drops off the bridge. He just sort of plunked himself off the bridge into the water, into the darkness, completely disappearing out of sight. I wasn't sure what to make of this. I sat there for what felt like minutes, but it was only a few seconds. And then I drove on. And as I'm driving over the bridge, I come to an area where the local police have a tendency to sit and wait for people to go maybe five miles over the speed limit so they can pull them over to meet their end-of-the-month quota. And I pull in to talk to the officer to explain to him what I just saw happen and that I think someone jumped off the bridge. He chuckled and said, look, man, you know there's a lot of druggies around here, a lot of drug problems, and if someone's really in the river, we'll just fish him out. It's probably someone who was tweaked on something and just jumped off the bridge thinking they could make it. Well, I've not heard any reports of any bodies being fished out of the river, but it makes me wonder if that weird frog man creature I saw a little over a year ago during the same type of storm in the spring is it in any way connected to what I just saw after a heavy rainstorm during the spring. I'm your host for Paranormally Speaking, Neil Parks. Please hold for an important message from our sponsor. Monster.fandom.com That's monster.fandom.com Hey guys, good news. The outrageously expensive little blue pill is now generic, which means you can get the prescription medication to treat ED at affordable prices. And hence makes it extra affordable. You pay just 30 bucks for a month's supply. And right now, get your first online doctor's visit totally free when you go to 4hims.com slash good. That's right, free, zero copay, no expensive appointments, no awkward face-to-face conversations to get your prescription. Hims connects you to doctors online who can evaluate you and, if appropriate, prescribe your ED medication. And a pharmacy sends it right to your door. Hims makes it affordable, private, and incredibly easy. Nobody likes dealing with ED. Now, thanks to Hims, nobody has to. And that's really good news. To start your free online visit, you need to go to this exclusive address, 4hims.com slash good. That's 4hims.com slash good for your free online visit. F-O-R-H-I-M-S dot com slash good. Family is big around here. We're family owned, family operated, family managed. And that means legacy. That means dependability. That means using Granger. With over 1.5 million products and knowledgeable product experts, Granger has whatever we need. And with same-day pickup and next-day delivery options, they have it whenever we need it. For over 90 years, businesses like ours have trusted Granger. Because, like family, Granger's got our back. Call, clickgranger.com, or stop by to see for yourself. Granger, for the ones who get it done. The Melonhead Legends, in the American folklore of Ohio, Michigan, and Connecticut, Melonheads are beings generally described as small humanoids with bulbous heads who occasionally emerge from hiding places to attack people. 
different variations of the legend attribute different origins to these entities. For example, legends in Michigan. The Melonheads of Michigan are said to reside around Felt Mansion, although they have been reportedly seen in southern forested areas of Ottawa County, according to one story. They were originally children with a strange disease uh, that was called Hydroc Palos. They lived at the Junction Insane Asylum near Felt Mansion. The story explains that after enduring physical and emotional abuse, they became feral and were released into the forests surrounding the asylum. The Allegan County Historical Society asserts that the asylum never existed, although it was at one point a prison. However, the story has been part of the local folklore for several decades. Lake Town Township manager Al Mishkin told the Holland Sentinel that he had heard the tales as a teenager, noting that his friends referred to the beings as wobbleheads. Some versions of the legend say that the children once lived in the mansion itself, but later retreated to a system of caverns or caves in a nearby hill left over from an abandoned zoo. Some versions of this legend say that the children devised a plan to escape and kill the doctor that abused them. It is said that the children had no place to hide the body of the doctor, so they cut, up, cut it up in small pieces, which they hid around the mansion. Rumors exist that teenagers who had broken into the mansion saw ghosts of the children and claimed to see shadows of the doctor's murder through the light coming from an open door. The legend has spread throughout the region, even becoming the subject of a 2011 film simply titled The Melonheads, which is based around the West Michigan legend. Brings to mind the movie The Hills Have Eyes. These were horribly deformed, mutated, wobbly head, and uh, physically mutated and mentally handicapped killers that were living in the mountains and uh, the desert region out west. Very similar to that, uh, another tale is Wrong Turn for, that took place in West Virginia, where these horribly deformed, inbred mutant freaks were coming out of the woods when you got too close to their property, and they were one by one killing people. Uh, the same legends exist within Ohio, as I mentioned earlier. The Melonhead stories of Ohio are primarily associated with the Cleveland suburb of Kirtland. According to the local lore, the Melonheads were originally orphans under the watch of a mysterious figure known as Dr. Crow, sometimes spelled Crow with an E at the end, or Crow, K-R-O-H-E, or Crow, K-R-O-H, or just known as Dr. Melonhead. Crow is said to have performed unusual experiments on the children who developed large, hairless heads and malformed bodies. Some accounts claim that the children were already suffering from the same disease as mentioned uh, what the melonheads from Michigan were suffering from and that Crow injected even more fluid into their brains. Eventually, the legend continues that the children killed Crow, burned the orphanage and retreated to the surrounding forests and supposedly feed on babies. Legend holds that the melonheads may be sighted along Weisner Road in Kirtland and Chardon Township. The melonhead legend has been popularized on the internet, particularly on websites Creepy Cleveland and Dead Ohio, where users offer their own versions of the story. A movie, Legend of the Melonheads, released in 2010, is based on the Ohio legend and various other 
legends in the Kirtland, Ohio area. Now, the legend in Connecticut pertaining to the Melonheads, several variations of Melonhead legends can be found throughout southwest Connecticut, especially in the central and eastern Fairfield County and western New Haven County, Connecticut, and eastern Fair Fairfield County. Many tales can be found in communities such as Trumbull, Shelton, Stratford, Monroe, Easton, and Weston. In western central New Haven County, tales can be found in towns like Seymour, Oxford, Milford, and Southbury. There are several primary Connecticut variations. According to one variation of the myth, Fairfield County was the location of once again, an insane asylum for the criminally insane that burned down in the fall of 1960, resulting in the death of one of the staff and most of the patients, with 10 to 20 inmates unaccounted for. Supposedly having survived and escaped into the woods, the legend states that the Melonheads' appearances, it's the result of them having resorted to cannibalism in order to survive the harsh winters of the region and to inbreeding which in turn caused them to develop the same disease of uh, the enlarged head that exists within the melon heads found in Michigan and Ohio. Some retellings of this version substitute the asylum or prison with places of business or campgrounds and the inmates, patients with employees, staff, or campgoers. Individual variations will modify what town these individuals were originally from and where they ended up. According to the second variation, the Melonheads are descendants of a colonial-era family from Shelton Trumbull, who were banished after accusations of witchcraft and incest were made against them, causing them to retreat to the woods. As with the first version of this legend, this variation attributes to the appearance of Melonheads to inbreeding. Melonheads allegedly prey upon humans who wander into their territory, like the first version, individual retellings will modify what town it takes place in or what family it was originally from and where they ended up. A number of Connecticut-based legends, such as Dracula Drive, of the Melonheads have one characteristic in common. The inclusion of a secluded, rustic, or single-lane, usually dirt road, running through the Melonheads' wooded territory. Many towns in Fairfield County and New Haven County have rural and forested sections, and it is not uncommon that these forests have rural roads running through them. These roads at times are associated with the local variation of the Melonhead legend and are said to be part of the Melonhead's territory. In a number of towns such as Shelton and Trumbull and Monroe, several legends place the Melonheads territory around a mysterious and mythical street commonly referred to as Dracula Drive. None of the towns that have a Melonhead legend have roads designated as Dracula Drive, depending on what version of the legend is told. One of the several existing streets are mistakenly referred to or coincidentally coincide with the Dracula Drive mentioned in the Melonhead stories. For instance, some legends place the Melonheads' territory in and around Sawmill City Road in Shelton as Dracula Drive. Some other roads mistakenly refer to it as Dracula Drive. That includes Edmonds Road in Oxford, Velvet Street in Trumbull, and Monroe. This runs between Tanusha Road and Trumbull and Judd Road 
and Monroe near the eastern border. Zion Hill Road in Milford, the roads around Lake Mohican and Fairfield, Marginal Road in New Haven, Jeremy Swamp Road in Southbury, Pats Road and around Roosevelt Forest in Stratford, Connecticut legend, inspirations, and origins. The characteristics of the legends evolve, and parts of the various versions of the legend affect other parts' versions of the legend. For example, some legends claim the melon heads would bite or consume whoever entered their territory. Also, the melon heads territory commonly involves a secluded rustic or dirt road running through it. This is one instance where elements of the legend interact over time and why some actual streets are mistakenly referred to as Dracula Drive by some locals. The Loveland Ohio Frog In Ohio folklore, the Loveland Frog, also known as the Loveland Frogman or Loveland Lizard, is a legendary humanoid frog described as standing roughly four feet tall, allegedly spotted in Loveland, Ohio in 1972. The Loveland Frog legend gained renewed attention when a Loveland police officer reported a colleague that he had seen an animal consistent with the descriptions of the frogman. After a purported sighting in 2016, the second officer called a news station to report that he had shot and killed the same type of creature some weeks after the 1972 incident and had identified it as an overly large iguana that was missing its tail. The University of Cincinnati folklore professor Edgar Slotkin compared the Loveland frog to Paul Bunyan, saying that the stories about it have been passed down for several decades and that sighting reports seem to come in predictable cycles. In May 2014, the Loveland Frog legend was made into a musical titled Hot Damn, It's the Loveland Frog. According to various legends, the creature was first sighted in 1955 with some versions of the story specifying that being the month of May when it occurred. There are three different versions of that story that only differ slightly from each other. The three stories that start the same way with a businessman or a traveling salesman driving along an unnamed road late at night. The stories start to diverge at that point. In one story, the driver was heading out of the Branch Hill neighborhood when he spotted three figures stood erect on their hind legs along the side of the road, each three to four feet tall with leathery type skin and frog faces. In the other two versions of the story, the creatures were spotted under or over a poorly lit bridge. There are a number of bridges in Loveland going over the Little Miami River. The story tells of a businessman watching the figures converse for a while until one of the creatures held a wand over its head and fired a spray of sparks startling the observer into fleeing the scene. In August 2016, local Cincinnati TV stations reported that a night of fun turned into a chilling tale of horror when two teenagers playing Pokemon Go between Loveland Madeira Road and Lake Isabella claimed to see a giant frog near the lake on August 3rd that stood up and walked on its hind legs. It was later revealed to be a local student from an Archbishop Mueller High School in a homemade costume. James Renner's science fiction mystery novel, The Man from Primrose Lane, features a fictionalized version of the Loveland Frog. 
Matt Roberts' horror fiction anthology, Little Horror Stories for the Soul, also features stories of fictionalized version of the Law of Lynn Frogmen in the novella Suburban Legend. And also, Ohio is known for the London, Ohio Werewolf. I wrote about that encounter and put a creative spin at the end of it. Um, creative liberty in the, in the story itself. It was chronicled in uh, the documentary series My Haunting, I believe it was, on Discovery. And it dealt with a new fa uh, family that moved into London, Ohio, and purchased a house in the rural farmland outside of town. And strange things started happening when the husband would go to work shortly after they moved in, and he was working trick work, like a really weird schedule, late at night, not coming home till early in the morning. And his wife was left at home to basically put things away, make a home for themselves, organize everything, unbox their items, and he would do what he could with what little time he had when he came home from work. So when she was up late at night in the kitchen, she noticed eyes peering in at her from the outside by one of the giant oak trees close to the house. And they would go from yellow to red and they'd be peering in at her. And each time she saw them, they moved closer to the window until one evening it made its move and threw its arm through the window of the kitchen, reaching in at her and had fur all over the arm and long, thick claws. She reported this incident to her husband, who then started doing his own investigation into the incident and trying to track this creature once he found footprints belonging to said creature that the woman identified as hairy and lanky and monstrous. One morning, he got up relatively early on a day off to go and get breakfast for them from the town as he goes out to start his vehicle and this is right at the peak of winter time there was snow on the ground it was very cold and when he turned on his truck the headlights and the taillights came on the taillights omitted a red glow and behind him he could see the outline of a giant beast of some sort that threw its arm up over its face to shield its eyes he got out and when seeing it with his own eyes, it climbed up the side of the house, jumped off the roof, and headed up the hill. A couple of days later, he got into contact with a friend that he had made through work. And they decided to follow the location of where this thing had headed into, follow the tracks, and led them to in a secluded area of cabin that was in the woods that the windows were boarded up, but the tracks stopped at the back door, the footprints. And his friend started banging wildly on the back door, hurling insults, cursing at whatever was inside, daring it to come out. And he thought, you know, we're standing here with shotguns. This is going to look really bad. We need to move on. So he starts asking people around town who owns that cabin. And they mentioned a name of a man and he tracked that man down to a tire shop that was locally owned. And he worked in the tire shop and stayed 
in the back all the time. He never came up front. They just wheeled things to him, brought things into him, and he would come out of the shadows and work on the stuff and then go back into what was described as his lair. It was his little workstation in the back and it was dimly lit. But you knew that he was back there working around and had tools to go to and use. So he and his friend devised a plan to take a flat tire to the shop, have them wheel it over to him and work on it so they could get a better look at this guy. And as he emerged from the shadows when they came in, he was every bit of six five to six eight. Um, grayish skin looked very sickly, but a broad build of a man. Broad shoulders, thick build, looked like he could knock a house over. Had piercing yellow eyes and just stared at them. Took the tire into the back of the shadowed area where he was working. Repaired it, rolled it back out to his shop manager, who then charged the two guys for the repair. And when they took the wheel and tire back to the pickup truck to load it, there was a weird inscription written on the inside of the wheel itself that went around in a circle. And it was strange hieroglyphics, strange markings. They couldn't make heads or tails of what it was. So he went, the owner, uh, the, the husband, went to the local library, started looking into books of legends, books of the occult, books of witchcraft, and found that those were markings that were used to ward off evil spirits or markings used to ward off shapeshifter skinwalkers. And this was brought to his attention upon reading it that maybe that man had a secret or a curse and had written that inscription on there as a way to keep him from returning to that property when he makes the change into a lycanthrope. So they put that out of their mind for a while after that day. The encounter stopped happening. The visit stopped happening. The creature stopped showing up. And he attributed that to the markings that were written on the inside of that tire by the man who repaired it, who potentially could be the Loveland werewolf and wrote those markings on there as a way to ward him away from that property to not damage or hurt anyone or damage the house or hurt anyone while he was a victim of that curse of, of becoming a werewolf. Now, many, many months passed after this and the sheriff came to his home uh, to the man's home and um, said that he knew he was asking about that cabin he knew that they had made some form of contact with the man who owned it and that he needed them to come see something so he and his friend went back out to the cabin with the police department with the sheriff and he opened up the door and showed them what the inside of the cabin looked like. And there was a room that was there that was padded with like steel walls welded together, thick steel. They had claw marks in it, shackles and chains and like a skylight that allowed whatever was in there to, to get fresh oxygen, to see the sky and it smelled like wet dog and death. And 
the old man, or whether he was old or not, died in that cabin alone and potentially cursed with the curse of becoming a werewolf in Loveland, Ohio. That is where the actual story stops. But like I said, I wrote about this encounter in my fourth, uh, fifth book, Haunted Enough, and put a creative spin at the end of it for my own amusement. You'll have to check it out sometime. It's called Haunted Enough, written by Neil Parks. You can find that, of course, on Amazon or through any book dealer that you know of, Barnes & Noble. The list goes on. Please hold for an important message from our sponsor. Available to order now, my first audiobook, Neil Parks Presents Truly Terrifying Tales, narrated by me. It's ready to order and download on bandcamp.com. My other books, of course, are always available to order on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and Lulu.com. You can also order t-shirts that I designed that I normally sell at conventions, festivals, lectures, and my book signings. I always have the 9-inch tall 3D printed Bigfoot silhouettes available, and last spring my first children's book was released. It was written by my good friend and fellow author, R.L. Walker. I illustrated this book and it was a major shift in gears for me, considering that my writing and art style has always been dark and scary. To order any of what I just mentioned, you can also go to my email, which is parksparanormal at gmail.com. That is parksparanormal at gmail.com. Standing by. Fear of the dark. It's a common fear that so many people share. It's a common one. One of the reasons darkness can be so scary is that our eyes tend to play tricks on us when the lights are low. A jacket hanging on the door can easily morph into what looks like a person, or a pillow stuffed under your blankets can appear as someone lurking in your bed. Sometimes it's easy to debunk these visions as your imagination. Um, Thank goodness, I guess. But what if you saw something shadowy that wasn't a trick of light? Dark, shadowy humanoid figures... Figures like these are actually known as shadow people, and to many people who have studied them or experienced them firsthand, they are very real and extremely terrifying. Ever had the experience of reading or watching television when suddenly from the periphery of your vision, you see what appears to be a shadowy figure moving in the room, even for a moment? Again, it's easy to to chalk these experiences to your eye playing tricks on you, or the reflection of a passing car, but countless people around the world have reported eerily similar sightings, some of them highly specific. Thus, the mystery of the shadow people has captivated the minds of paranormal friends everywhere. So exactly what are shadow people, and how real can they possibly be? The term used to describe these alleged beings was apparently coined by author Heidi Hollis who has penned several books on paranormal phenomena. Shadow people have been around since the beginning of time and are a dark influence upon society, Hollis said in an interview with radio show Coast on Coast to Coast AM. And it appears that these beings have, in fact, been around throughout history, as descriptions of shadowy human-like figures have appeared in folklore dating back to ancient times. For example, the Quran mentions pitch-black sapient beings that aren't entirely spiritual or physical, 
and people in ancient Europe reportedly believed that shadow beings desired blood and without it couldn't be reborn. And in modern times, reports from people claiming to have seen these people, these beings themselves, come from all over the world. Most of these shadow creatures appear through our periphery vision, and people who see them are often unable to describe in detail the features of these mystical entities, apart from their human-like forms and the occasional reports of fiery red eyes, explained Beyond Science TV. Similarly, in Hollis' book about shadow people, titled The Secret War, she describes them as dark silhouettes with human shapes and profiles that flicker in and out of peripheral vision. <clears throat> but it appears that people have begun to see shadow people in more detail in recent times, perhaps because the beings are, for whatever horrifying reasons, making themselves seen more and more. People are beginning to see them straight on and for longer periods of time, explained Thodco on its website, which also notes the appearance of red eyes on the shadow beings being prevalent. There are, of course, many theories about what shadow people come from and whether or not they are even real. Skeptics note that seeing shadow people can simply be chalked up to sleep paralysis, which is straight up terrifying in its own right. I don't care how much people explain it away. Heightened emotional states or sleep deprivation as people who have experienced these psychological or um, physiological conditions have noted a correlation. Although, if I might add, it still doesn't fully explain why they are seeing the same creepy kind of thing, right? And of course, there's always the explanation that your peripheral vision is basically guaranteed to play tricks on you because it's designed to detect motion and movement, not detail. It's likely that you could make mountains out of molehills, or, in this case, shadow people out of shadows, if you were in the right mindset. But then there are these paranormal theories, the ones that seem to resonate more with the people who have actually lived through terrifying encounters and feel strongly that the shadow people are more than just imaginary. Hollis, through her research and experience, apparently believes that shadow people are extraterrestrial in origin. In other words, they are aliens. Author and leading paranormal expert Rosemary Ellen Guiley appears to have had seen alien connection in this. She says, I discovered that many shadow people experiencers are also ET experiencers, especially abductees, Guiley told Psychology Today in an interview. So perhaps these beings are alien in origin, but others believe they may be ghosts, demons, or other kinds of interdimensional beings. According to Natalia Kuna, a psychic medium, shadow people are said to be conscious, intelligent, interdimensional beings that can shapeshift into various forms and figurations and move back and forth between dimensions. That sounds okay, right? But not so fast. Most reports on shadow people are overwhelmingly negative. Encounters with shadow people tend to be accompanied by a feeling of dread, according to many reports. And sorry, but the glowing red eyes are decidedly unchill. But there are allegedly different types of shadow beings, and some of them are non-threatening. Most of the time, though, 
It's just dark and scary stuff. Apparently, there's one type of shadow person that is said to be more demonic in nature, and that's known as the hat man. And it's reportedly seen wearing a top hat and a suit. Other times, shadow people have been reported to attempt a physical attack during sleep paralysis. Shadow people are sometimes discovered by a person who wakes up to find them trying to choke or suffocate them, said Hollis in an interview with Coast to Coast AM. Overall, I'm not feeling super great about the whole shadow person business, but I guess we have to live with the knowledge now. You can bet I'll be surrounding my bed with protective crystals, of course, and I think that we can all agree that we'll be feeling an extra twinge of fear the next time we see something slightly shadowy in our peripheral. Roswell, UFOs, flying saucers, alien abduction. Are we alone? Information regarding this and many other questions about the unknown are only a click away at www.theufostore.com. Theufostore.com offers hundreds of DVDs about UFOs, aliens, crop circles, conspiracies, Bigfoot, suppressed science, ancient mysteries. Log on to www.theufostore.com and request a free UFO store catalog. Theufostore.com, the largest selection of UFO products on the internet. Werewolves, werewolves, werewolves. Where are they? Where do they come from? What do they want? This is so much more than just Hollywood fandom folklore horror and what fun nonsense it is, actually. Eleven historical werewolves that terrorized villages around the world. You might think of werewolf stories as something only told for fun around campfires, but that hasn't always been the case. Historically, many slayings, crimes, and generally horrific incidences have been attributed to werewolves. People truly believed in the existence of these creatures. In fact, in the 16th and 17th centuries in Europe, werewolf trials accompanied witch trials, and sometimes they were even one and the same. It's even more surprising to note the number of people who confess to being werewolves or lycanthropes. Some were likely tortured into confession, but others believed themselves to be real werewolves. The idea that someone could transform into an animal was a popular one, and people thought they could make a deal with the devil in order to obtain that power. Is there any truth behind enduring the legend of the werewolf? Or were these creatures just convenient scapegoats for mysterious misdeeds? Whatever you think, there's no denying that these historical encounters with werewolves are fascinating and downright spooky. Now, for example, the werewolf of Chalons cooked his victims for dinner in the 1500s. In the 1500s, a French tailor was convicted of luring in, torturing, and slaying his victims before cooking and eating them for supper. Another good example is Peter Stubay, claimed to be a serial killer who was actually a werewolf. This was in 1589. Peter Stubay was one of many self-confessed werewolves. In 1589, he claimed that his wolfskin belt allowed him to transform, and he also said he had slain over a dozen victims. In 1685, the mayor became the Wolf of Ensbach. The people of Ansbach were angry and scared at their, that their livestock was attacked by a wolf-type creature. Hans, the werewolf, said he was bitten by a man in black. This was in Estonia in the 17th century. Giles Garnier, the werewolf of Dole. Jacques Roulat, 
The Werewolf of Angers mutilated a boy in 1598. Two werewolf friends hunted together in 1521. With a long trail of gore behind them, Pierre Burgot and Michael Verdun confessed to being werewolves in 1521. Their deeds were gruesome, as records indicate. They killed a woman who was gathering peas, also seized a little girl of four years old, and ate the palpitation flesh, all saved one arm. The Georgia werewolf, Emily Isabella Burt, terrorized neighbors in the 19th century. This is an American werewolf legend that comes from Georgia. As the story goes, the widowed Mildred Burt lived in a rural part of the country in the mid-19th century. One of her daughters, Emily Isabella Burt, had trouble sleeping at night, and she had extra hair and sharp teeth. Then there was the werewolf of Polotsk. He lived on as a sorcerer and a werewolf. He was a very real, real ruler of Polotsk in what is now known as Belarus, known as Zevlaz, the sorcerer for his rumored magical powers. He was also believed to take the form of a wolf. Then there was the beast of Gudavan, who stalked through the 18th century France. The tale of the beast of Gouvandon is one surrounded by mystery and a whole lot of bloodshed. Cannibalism made you a werewolf in ancient Greece. Beliefs differ on what exactly turned someone into a werewolf. In ancient Greece, apparently people believed that someone could be transformed by eating the meat of a wolf and a human mixed together. The story is similar to the tale of King Laekouan. He attempted to trick the god Zeus into eating human flesh. Zeus wasn't pleased with this and turned Laekouan into a wolf as punishment. His name is likely the root of the word lycanthropy. And of course, these are some of the tales and legends that surround us in the world we live in, pertaining to the dogman, werewolves, skinwalkers, other type of bipedal wolf or dog-like creatures. And there's so many more tales that are not just of the ancient world, but of the world we currently live in, like the werewolf of London, Ohio. And that encounter took place in the 1980s. I wrote about this in my book, Haunted Enough. Be sure to check that out if you want to read that tale. It's something that I would assume you'd find quite chilling. Uh, I've been told that it's probably the book itself is one of the scariest books I've ever written. I hope you enjoy it. This tragic story was, was shared with me from Brian Ellis of Expedition Bigfoot. Richard Stevens, a 13-year-old boy, was killed last Tuesday in Knott County, Kentucky. Brian had been following the stories, trying to stitch together the evidence to make some sense of it all. The boy was staying at relative's house and a familiar, very familiar with the area. He was playing in the backyard and a relative called 911 at 6 p.m. last Tuesday evening, saying the boy was being attacked by a canine-type creature. First responders on the site at 6.30 p.m. They made it after the 911 caller director directed them up the mountain behind the house. They had difficulty getting up the mountainside because of the steep, slick terrain, but found the boy was dead 300 to 400 feet straight up the rain-slick mountain. 
State troopers reported something is out there. Coroner had confirmed that the boy was killed by a canine-type creature, but couldn't identify what it was exactly. The latest reports are still listed as canine creature. There have not been any wolves in Kentucky for decades. A full-grown 40-pound coyote couldn't drag a 100-pound dead body up a mountainside. There are no mountain lions in Kentucky. A feral dog, or even several feral dogs, could not drag a 100-pound dead body up a mountainside, nor could a bear. The coroner has determined the cause of death to be a canine-type creature once again. The funeral was on Friday, and Brian had communicated with the relative to go set up a GoFundMe page, and three different reporters, all at the same time, had said canine creature. The coroner has had ample time to test the DNA. Known animals would be easily identified, but they aren't saying what it was that killed this poor boy. A bear or a mountain lion are the only two animals that Brian knows of that could kill a human and have the strength to drag him up 100 yards up a rain-slick mountainside. But it wasn't a bear or a mountain lion. Coroner said that the canine creature killed him. The authorities are asking neighbors to be hyper-vigilant of their surroundings. If you want more information, Google 13-year-old boy killed by animal attack in Kentucky. The story will most likely fade to black with no official ID of the animal or creature that killed him. Brian has taken the liberty of copying and posting this to reply to the Dogman post. Follow Brian Ellis and Expedition Bigfoot and you will read more about this and you will understand why the Dogman topic might be more important than the possibility of a Bigfoot attack. The Thing in the Swamp One of the most intriguing, not to mention chilling, encounters with a Pukwudgie is that of Bill Russo, a retired iron worker, or welder, who lives in Rainham, Massachusetts. His home was built on a knoll just a few hundred yards away from the Hockamock Swamp. For six years, Bill worked a shift from three in the afternoon until midnight. When he finally got home, it became his habit to take his 80-pound female Rottweiler German Shepherd mix, Samantha, for a late-night walk to get a little exercise and just relax. They walked every single night, not to mention what time of the year it was, and then everything changed one night. On one night in 1995, Bill and Sam went out on their nightly walk at about 1 in the morning. Usually, the two friends walked on the sidewalks towards the center of town and avoided the swamps. That particular night, however, the two changed their routine up a little and cut through his backyard and headed into the deep woods next to the swamps toward an old dam that had once provided much-needed water for an early ironworks. Sammy pulled along with Bill into an area that he calls the High Trees. And when they had gone about a half a mile, they came to a break where a road cut through the swamp. At this point, Samantha began acting up, pulling hard on her leash and looking up at Bill. She trembled and her hair stood on end and looked at her master for protection. 
Bill asked her, What's wrong, Samantha? I don't see anything. It's okay, baby. We'll go home now. Come on. He tugged on her leash, but she wouldn't move an inch. She was afraid of something, and according to Bill, Sam was not a dog that frightened easily. She just cried and quivered. It was clear that something in the darkness had terrified this poor dog. It wasn't long before Bill began to hear the thing that was frightening his beloved dog. It was faint at first, but it was unmistakable. An eerie voice was calling through the night air, saying, Iwachu, Iwachu. The high-pitched, unnatural voice repeated itself, getting louder and louder and closer at the same time. At first, Bill couldn't see anything, even though there was a street light about 20 feet ahead of him. The lamp cast a bluish circle of light on the pavement in front of him, and then, in Bill's own words, into the circle walked a hairy creature about three or four feet tall, which probably weighed a hundred pounds based on how it looked. What happened next has been haunting Bill for almost 20 years. He watch you. He watch you. Chew, chew. He watch you, the creature said repeatedly. It stood straight on two legs and stared at Bill. With eyes that were too large for its own head, like the eyes of an owl, the two friends were paralyzed as they watched the creature, but the creature just stood there and didn't appear to be threatening. Samantha trembled, and then she looked at Bill as if to ask, What is it? Bill looked at the dog and said, It's okay, Sam, in a somewhat unconvincing manner. The creature kept speaking and began to motion to him with its arms, asking him to come closer. The creature wasn't wearing any clothing to speak of and was covered in coarse, unkempt hair and was about five or six inches long. The thing that appeared to have a pot belly as well and Bill took it to be a young stages of old age. What in the world was he dealing with? Bill had no idea. What was this thing? Possibilities began running through Bill's mind. Perhaps it was just a local kid dressed up for Halloween. Then he realized that this thing couldn't possibly be a toddler, nor was it any animal that he had seen before. Bill had seen beavers, muskrats, foxes, and bears in the Hockmock Swamp, but this creature didn't even remotely look like any of those animals. Bill and Samantha stood there looking at the creature for what seemed like hours. But in reality, the encounter itself probably lasted only a few minutes. Although it appeared to be friendly and nothing over-threatening could be detected in its mannerisms, Bill had heard stories from other people about bizarre things that they had seen in the swamps, stories that could neither confirm or deny. Bill was scared. The tiny creature was much smaller than he was, and yet he was still very frightened. Worse yet, it was the middle of the night and the thing was talking to him. But eventually, Bill worked up enough courage and asked the creature a few questions. But the only answer that he received was Iwachu, over and over again. It was at this point that Bill and Samantha made a very big circle around the creature and went home as fast as they could. The two friends didn't look back, not even once. When Bill arrived home after the encounter, he was very shaken up about it. He made a big pot of coffee and kept drinking it throughout the night one cup after another. That night, he relived the entire experience over and over again in the confines of his living room. He wondered if he should have tried to talk to the creature more or if he should have 
at least walked up to it. What was it? What did it say? He asked himself. As near as he could figure, it was trying to speak English and was saying, We want you. We want you. Come here. Come here. Bill took this to mean that there was more than one of these creatures. Needless to say, Bill didn't get much in the way of sleep that night. To this day, almost 20 years later, Bill doesn't really know why the tiny creature wanted him. He has come to believe that he narrowly avoided his own death that night, but he also regrets not having taken action. If I had been Darwin or Dr. Livingston, he recounts, I would have walked to the thing and would have made a great discovery and would have written a new chapter in human history. But it was just, I was just a weak, frightened man who slinked away and lost a chance to catalog an entirely new species. I am ashamed to admit that I walked away. Did Bill encounter a Pukwudgie that night? He believes that he did, and the description of the creature's appearance and behavior all point out that he may have indeed encountered one of these tiny trolls. If one buys into the legends, then Bill was very wise to walk away from the creature. If he hadn't, then it's very possible that the creatures would have made a meal out of Bill and his faithful dog, Samantha, who passed away, unfortunately, in 1998. The man also believes as more and more of the Hockmock Swamp is filled, such encounters will become more and more commonplace. Who is to say that Bill isn't right? Imagine no longer being tied down to your computer, but having the freedom to take live talk radio with you anywhere you go. TalkStream Live introduces our first ever iPhone application. The talk shows you follow now follow you. And your iPhone is now the fastest and easiest way to stay connected to the best talk radio on the Internet. Listen to live talk shows 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Mobile talk radio from TalkStream Live. Now available in the iTunes App Store. That's it for this week. I'm Neil Parks, your host for Paranormally Speaking. It's been a lot of fun to go over strange lycanthropes, werewolves, skinwalkers, melonheads, frogmen. The list goes on. A lot of strange things out there, and we don't really understand the planet we live on. So much yet undiscovered, unexplored, and misunderstood. Have a great weekend. Thank you so much for joining me this week again on Paranormally Speaking. Please look me up on Google. Put in at the Neil Parks and you'll find all kinds of cool information about me. Nothing illegal, thank God. I've lived a clean life. Thank you. Have a blessed weekend. And I'll catch you next time. Heartbreaker, dream maker, love taker, don't you mess around with me. You're a We took all of our at-risk employees and we sent them home and we paid them through that entire process. That first wave of, of PPP...